Welcome to the podcast of Saltbox Church, where we are rethinking church and reworking life around the person and presence of King Jesus. Good morning. We're going to open the Bible. In fact, go ahead and open it. We're in Acts chapter 5. Um, but here's, as you do, if, you, if you've got a paper Bible, open that thing up. If, you've got, if you're scrolling on your phone, great, open that up too. If you don't have a paper Bible and want one, we, got them, we have them for you right outside those doors, um, both a one-year Bible and an NIV study Bible, so make sure you grab one of those. Um, so a lot of times when I open the Bible, I will say something like, Lord Jesus, speak to me. So here's what I want you to do with me this morning as we open our Bibles is just to posture our hearts, to posture our minds, and say, Holy Spirit, would you speak to me? Ready? One, two, three. Holy Spirit, would you speak to me? Would you show me? And would you give me the courage to obey? Amen. Okay. So Acts 5 is where I am. We're going to start <clears throat> where we stopped last week. We're going to pick up in verse 12. Um, and if you, if you weren't here last week, we jumped into Ananias and Sapphira big. You can go back and listen to that if you'd like to, but really interesting and, and I think powerful message. Um, but I want to start off, there's a, there's a giant in the faith, a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones. Um, he died in 1981, so he was really influential really in the 1900s. But here's what he said. <clears throat> Most competent historians are agreed in saying that what undoubtedly saved England from a revolution such as was experienced in France at the end of the 18th century was nothing but the evangelical revival. This was done not because anything was done directly, but because masses of individuals had become Christians. And they were living this better life. They had this higher outlook. The whole political situation was affected, and great acts of parliament which were passed in the last century were mostly due to the fact that there were such large numbers of individual Christians found in the land. We're entering into, in the book of Acts, I, I, if you wanted to write that down, I went too fast. I'm not going to repeat it. You can come up and ask me afterwards, and I'll show it to you. But big old, big old quote. But we're entering into, in the book of Acts, so, so Jesus has lived on the earth. He was here for 33, 34 years, but he, he ministered for three years. He trained 12 apostles and then a huge group of, of male and female uh, disciples around that group. He has uh, crucified on this hill called Golgotha, right outside the old city gates in Jerusalem. He is buried in... In a, in an earthen or rock tomb, and then he breaks the power of death and hell. He resurrects from the dead. He appears to over 500 witnesses multiple times, verifying and documented accounts in Scripture that he is indeed alive. He is not some ghost or some spirit, but he has physical flesh and blood. He's been resurrected from the dead. And then he ascends into heaven. He is coronated king, and he takes up his place at the right hand of God the Father. And what happens is there's this um, sort of mysterious mysterious um, transition that happens because the body of Jesus was literally ministering on planet earth. And then when Jesus ascends and takes his place as king, coronated, uh, or which just means crowned king, sitting next to God the Father, he then releases his spirit, also called the 
Holy Spirit in this huge act called Pentecost, which we just studied, and suddenly the body of Jesus is no longer simply his body now crowned in heaven, but it is who? Us. We become the actual body of Christ. So what's happening as, and you may have heard that before, if you're a church person, you may have heard body of Christ. What is that? It is literally the new body of Christ. So the new body of Christ, also known as church or us, that's right, is now here and God is, is doing something new. And what's amazing is when one human is walking around, now he's fully God, but he's also fully human, he's limited by time and space, right? But when he ascends and he sends his spirit, the spirit of Jesus or the Holy Spirit, to inhabit the body, his new body of Christ, in hundreds and hundreds of believers. At this point, we're probably pushing 6,000 New Testament believers in Acts 5. Is my, that, that would probably be counting men. So if you count women and children and everybody, and don't get offended if you're a female, that's just the way they did it then. But God had female disciples too, don't. You know, so, but, but when he released all of a sudden his spirit into the church or the body of Christ, so now we're probably pushing 15,000 believers in the city of Jerusalem and we're getting ready to experience massive persecution. Now, guess what? It's interesting, and I started with the quote I started with because we're in a time and in a place in America where we're, we're I actually just read one article where some, the guy said, um, we're ex-Christian. It's interesting. But here's the thing. This is nothing to wring your hands about. God is not worried. He is not upset. He is not uptight. He is unfolding a super and sovereign plan. And what is amazing is in the darkest times of the New Testament church is when the message of the gospel and the power of Jesus goes out, not most dimly, but most It's actually in the countries around the world right now, Iran, China, and India, that Christians are most persecuted, that the church is growing most quickly. And in a place like this where we can meet in a public middle school, we may not be able to do this forever. This is amazing. But actually, Christianity is on the decline. Now, this is great. This is great. Listen to me. Take a big, deep breath. God is doing something, and I am convinced that much like the book of Acts right here, that we are sitting at a time and a place in our history as a nation and in all of our lives that the greatest opportunity is actually in front of us. Come on. So take heart, and let's dig in. Okay, so we're going to start in Acts uh, 5, um, chapter 12. We're going to attempt to look at, um, if I budget my time this morning, we're going to attempt to look at um, three responses to Jesus. So we're going to look at um, Peter and, and John and really all of the apostles, how they're responding to the new body of Jesus, which is us. In this case, it's the church. Okay, we're also going to look at Caiaphas. Anyone know who Caiaphas is? He's the high priest. He's actually the high priest that sentenced Jesus to death. We're going to look at Caiaphas and some of the religious dudes that are hanging out with him. And then we're also going to look at this um, guy named Gamaliel. And we're going to attempt to look at how all three responded. Because I think the same responses exist actually today. All right. So let's let's dig in here and see if we can unfold this. All right. uh, Verse 12, chapter 5 of Acts. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. 
and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. This is a big old porch in the temple. So thousands and thousands of them are meeting in this public place. It's almost like uh, the only thing I could even think of is actually if we were meeting at Longleaf Park, um, right on the side of South College Road so that everybody could actually see us. That's, that's like how public this gathering was. And I think God did that intentionally. Uh, verse 13, no one else dared to join them. Does anyone remember why? Ananias and Sapphira just died. It's like, whoa, okay. Even though they were highly regarded by the people. So the church is deeply, deeply respected. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. So the church continues to grow. Okay, verse 15. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Okay, so what is happening here? And, I, and so the, I, we, we have to ask a number of questions. Why is God manifesting his presence so powerfully in this paragraph? Why are people bringing the sick? Why are people being healed even so much so that Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by? Let me finish this and then we'll, we'll try to open it. Verse 16, crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem. So who's coming? The whole country. I mean, everybody is like pouring into the city of Jerusalem to see what? The new body of Jesus, the move of the spirit in and through this radical like church that is alive. And it's like, it's happening. And it's a bunch of unschooled, ordinary men and women who are like preaching and who are standing up and who are transforming this entire society. So crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits. And all of them were healed. This is very rare in scripture. Okay, all of them. It doesn't say some of them. It says, now, and we got to remember too, because this is written by a guy named Dr. Luke. He's the only Gentile author in the entirety of the scriptures. He wrote the book of Luke and he wrote Acts. And so he, he has this scientific mind. If you ever see those signs that say science is real, say with me, science is real. I know God created it. It is. It is. They're actually right. Science is absolutely real. God created it. And what's fascinating is he brings this early scientist or doctor to faith, Dr. Luke. And Dr. Luke actually records the book of Acts from the apostles and what they shared with him. Excuse me. He records the, the book of Luke from the uh, apostles and what they shared with him. And then he records the book of Acts because he's in it and living it. Okay, so the question is, why and how is God um, doing such an extraordinary thing that people are bringing the sick? I mean, can you imagine if today there was so many people lined up here at our church that we're going out the sidewalks and we're going out the side doors and people are being brought in like stretchers and wheelchairs and they're going all the way out to Hugh McRae or now Longleaf Park and all of a sudden people are getting healed and they're standing up. That's what this would be like. Like this is a radical display of the grace and the supernatural power of God at work. Can anyone explain this? Okay, now we got to ask the question, and I'm not really making a, a treatise as to why, and I'd, I'd hope one day the American church sees much more of this. We see more of this in other countries because in other countries there's very little hope except in God. Here we have lots of hope in other things that aren't. So we like to rely on things that aren't. So we don't see much of 
Okay, there you go, pretty simple. Now, but the question is, what is God doing? And here's what I would say to you. God is uh, sovereignly, from Genesis to Revelation, he is reaching out, not just to the entirety of the world, but specifically at this point in time, he is reaching out to his special chosen people called the Jews. That's right, so the Jews. So he has demonstrated to them, he has come to them, he has lived among them as Jesus of Nazareth. He has journeyed with them. He has gone to a cross and died in front of them. Now he's empowered this New Testament church, and all of a sudden all of these healings and things and supernatural things are happening all over. What is he declaring? God is actually preaching a message here. What's he saying? Pastor Michael's making me uncomfortable. Good. He is saying that Jesus is not only the Messiah, but he's the savior of the entire world. And so what I want you to even begin to reframe this as is this is a loving God that is so patient and so desires that none should perish. And he is slow to anger and he is abounding in love and he is rich in mercy. And he keeps reaching out to his chosen people and reaching out to his chosen people. And now he is preaching the grandest sermon of all times. He is saying, my son, Christ Jesus, walked the earth, lived and died, was resurrected from the dead, raised and was coronated King Jesus. He's released his spirit upon the New Testament church. And I am proving to you the validity of who this man Jesus was, fully God and fully man, by the supernatural acts that are exploding up and down the streets of Jerusalem. So that no one could deny it. So the whole idea here is that the entire, the entire city of Jerusalem, the surrounding towns, the nation of Israel, and people all around, anyone who wanted to know, could have walked in, and what would they have seen? People coming to Christ. People's lives being changed. People being supernaturally healed. Jesus is being preached. And what if they had a heart that was at all positioned or postured before God, they would have surrendered their life to Jesus. And it says, nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord Jesus and were added to their number. Is God's sermon working? Yes. Is it working uh, fully? In other words, did the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel ultimately turn to King Jesus? No. That's a heartbreak, isn't it? But what I want you to see is God gave this people and this point in time and this nation and this people group every opportunity and still is. And I want you to begin to even translate that this, we tend to think of God as like a God of punishment or a God of anger or, you know, even old school kind of preachers are going to preach this hellfire and damnation. And there's an element of truth in that, but the, their perception is wrong. He's a God of love. And so he's demonstrating his love and his compassion and his kindness and his slowness to anger by what he's doing. He's preaching the best message here without words. That's what's happening. Make sense? Okay. Let me also just point something out um, here. There's a study sort of in contrast that's happening because we're getting ready to read about the high priest. Verse 17 says, Then the high priest, whose name was 
Caiaphas and his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees. Okay, so there's this study in contrast because you have um, the apostles uh, and the members then of the great Sanhedrin. So this council is educated, this council is ordained, this council is approved of, this council in many ways has um, financial means, and yet they have zero power in ministry. They can't even draw a crowd. And then you've got 11 apostles and then tons of other male and female disciples gathering around those 11 apostles. Uh, they're ordinary. They're uneducated. They are not wealthy. Uh, they have, many of them are actually homeless by this point because they have left their homes and their occupations to follow King Jesus. And they're risking everything. They're risking their lives. They're risking their marriages, their kids, their families, their futures. They're absolutely risking everything to share the living word of God. So you have this dynamic growing church um, that is enjoying newness in Christ while you have this dead council defending the old. And Jesus is validating, um, verifying, proving the newness of Christ Jesus, the newness of this body because of all the signs and wonders that are being performed. Can you imagine where it says Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by and they'd be healed? Like, that is crazy. That is crazy. Okay, there's more there, but we're going to keep going. Verse 17, Then the high priest and his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said. Who said that? The angel of the Lord. Okay. And tell the people about this new life. There's like so much here. Lord, help me. Okay. I want you to... Um, I want you to get in because the first thing that we're sort of looking at is uh, we're looking at the, the, the surrender and the celebration um, of the apostles. And they're going to celebrate in suffering. We're going to see that shortly. But now we're looking at the jealousy and the hatred of Caiaphas. So the Caiaphas is the high priest. He's the one that sentenced Jesus to death. So let's just open something up. Um, 2 Peter 3.9, you can jot that down if you'd like, but says God desires that none should perish. Okay. Um, Luke 19.10 said, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. I'm going to pause this just a minute. Hey, Tate, uh, would you tell Louise to turn the heat off? It is like, whew. Okay, thank you. Let me see if I can dig back in. All right, uh, Luke 19.10 says, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Uh, Psalms 103.8, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, and Numbers 14.18 says, God is slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving sin, and rebellion. Now, can we infer from those passages that God called and offered Caiaphas grace? Absolutely. So do I think, when I know this God of the Bible, knowing the God of, of love and kindness and grace, desiring that all should come to repentance, slow to anger, gracious, do I think that when Jesus was standing in front of Caiaphas, in front of all the people, and then kind of hidden in the back courtyard, do I think that God was sovereignly offering Caiaphas a chance to repent? Unequivocally, yes. Okay? Absolutely. Now, let's just go there a second. Let's say Caiaphas would have given his life to Jesus on that day. Because he could have gone out and seen Jesus preach. He probably did. 
I, I can't prove it by scripture, but he probably snuck out and he watched Jesus preach. He probably talked to people who were healed. He probably had his own little investigation going on and he's staying up to speed on what this Jesus of Nazareth is doing. He's studying the Old Testament scriptures, probably even in the secret place. He's going, I wonder if this guy is the Messiah. Now, this is Michael's conjecture, but I'm just telling you, you could not have known the entirety of the Old Testament and not ask that question. So if he would have given his life to Jesus, whether it was on the day Jesus was killed or whether it was on this particular day, now that the church is spreading out and blossoming and people are being healed, what would have happened to him? He'd have lost his house. Probably. He'd have probably lost his marriage. What would his kids have done? probably said, we're not going to even call you father anymore. What would the local synagogue have done? Kicked him out. What would the great Sanhedrin have done? Out of here. What about his financial means to continue to support himself and feed himself? Gone. Like what I want you to get into here is the cost that it would have taken for him to surrender his life. And does he? In fact, this is really funny, but one of the questions I have, and I have all these questions for Jesus. I can't wait till I get to eternity. I'm going to run through those gates, and after I bow my and get on my face and go up, and I'm going to give him a hug, and then I, I just have some questions. And one of my questions is, did Caiaphas make it? Like in the end, you know the thief on the cross who at the very last moment it goes, God, forgive me. And Jesus looks at him and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Like did, I just want to know, did Caiaphas make it? And I don't know. We have no, in fact, if you look at Caiaphas's life historically, all accounts would say absolutely not. He's sitting in some eternal darkness, separated from Jesus. But it is not because God did not reach out. Okay? Now, I want to flip something right here, and I'm going to try to invite you into something, and you know it's going to flip on you, and it's going to be a challenge, but I want to invite you into something that I think is very, very powerful. There's a biblical principle here. Caiaphas, it says, is feeling what at this moment? Jealous. I want to propose to you that God offered Caiaphas. So so what's he jealous of? I mean, thousands of people are coming to Christ. The church is growing. Solomon's colonnade can't even fill them. There's lines of wheelchairs and stretchers and ambulances are coming up and unloading people and people are walking away. What's he jealous of? I mean, huge success, huge power, huge growth. Like it is this spontaneous combustion and expansion of the gospel of Christ Jesus. And he can't even get 10 or 15 people to come to worship. He's just jealous. Now, here's what I want you to see. I believe his jealousy was sourced in the fact that God offered him a seat at that table. You follow me? Did God offer, based on what we just said, did God offer everything to Caiaphas? Did he reject it? And then he became jealous and hateful. All right, now, let me share a quick story with you because I think it will allow you to assimilate this into your own life. Um, I've got a, I'm not going to open this full thing up, but I've got a dark seven-year period in my life, really dark, really ugly. God rescued me supernaturally. It's like an amazing story of redemption. And I came out of that. Abby and I met um, a couple years after this. My wife, Abby, sitting right here. And um, I was coming out of basically financial ruin. And it took us years and years and years to save enough to buy a house. Okay? Now, Jesus was homeless. I am not telling you that just because you give your life to Jesus, you're going to get a 
house. I'm just giving you an example. Yeah? Okay. So it took us years and years and years to buy a house. We got this old, we actually got the old pastor's house um, off of, uh, next to Beasley Road. It, it was the, the place where the pastor would live and preach at Masonboro Baptist Church. Really cool. Now, the, the thing was a disaster. It had um, shag carpet at one point that was like two inches thick. And then once that was ripped up, there was these really pretty hardwoods underneath it and they were, we, they were refinished. And then the gaps under the doors were like, you know, I mean, like you could stick your whole arm under the door, you know, our kids love that. Um, so, so we had, we just got this house and it was a raging disaster. Okay. It needed to be fully remodeled, the kitchen and the bathrooms. And yet I had just wanted to, I just wanted to have to mow the grass and I just wanted to have to like fix a plumbing pipe. And I just wanted to be able to hang a new light. And I was just, I was like praying and God planted in my heart that he called us to have a home um, ultimately so that we could house people and pastor and even launch a church from it. So we get into this house and I will never forget because we, we get into this home and I am so full of, I'm so excited. And Abby and I were in this um, small group. And being the wonderful young people that we were, we were leading the small group. And there was a couple in the small group that was about 10 years younger than me. And we went to their house um, for uh, the small group that night. And I'd never been to their house. And they had just built a new house. I'm not, I'm just, all cards on the table, I'm not given to a lot of uh, jealousy and covetousness. Just not. I walked in to that house. I was full of jealousy. I'm just telling you. I just was. It had this big open concept, living room, dining room, kitchen, and I was like, and I'm thinking of our little house with the green shag carpet, and that needed a new roof, and that needed fully remodeling and renovation. And I was supposed to lead the, um, the little Bible study or the small group that night. And have you ever read the Tenth Commandment? Anybody? <laughs> Come on, somebody, some Bible scholar out there. What's the Ten Commandment say? Thou shalt not covet your neighbor's house. And I'm supposed to lead the small group that night. And I am like, I am so embarrassed. I don't think I've ever covered anything like this in my whole life. I am mortified, embarrassed. I faked it through the whole night. I got in the car with Abby and I looked at her and I said, I have to confess to you, I am so embarrassed. I am filled with jealousy and covetousness over that house. And she looked at me and said, Me too. <laughs> now, I want you to hear something because it's very important. We processed our sin before God and felt like what the Holy Spirit was leading us to believe for was that one day we would have a house with an open concept, kitchen, living, dining. Real long story short, we flipped that house, bought another one, fully remodeled. I don't like living in houses and remodeling them. It's a lot of work. We'd work all day, remodel all night. It was really hard. We flipped that house, and now we're in a house that has a big open floor plan. And I'll never forget because Abby and I walked in there and when we first walked in the house that we're in now with this big open floor plan, it was a wreck. They had a couple teenagers and big dogs and there was holes in the walls and all sorts of stuff. But we walked in, it was this huge, and it was like the Holy Spirit nudged my heart and said, see, I called you to something and I was faithful to bring it around. Now, back to Caiaphas. 
I am convinced that Caiaphas's jealousy was rooted in the fact that he was legitimately called and offered a seat at the table by King Jesus. And he first said, and then he was filled with jealousy and hatred. Now, flip the coin into your own heart. Am I saying every time you're jealous for something, it's because God's called you to it? I'm not, but I am saying it's worth going, Father, is this something you've called me to? Is this something you've called us to? And if it is, then latch on to that thing by hope. Repent of your jealousy and covetousness. I remember seeing speakers and pastors when I was a very young man and going, God, I want to be like that. Was I jealous? I think I was receiving a call from God. But how does God plant hope in our hearts and how does he help us see things that we're called to without showing us something so that we can hope? You follow me? So I'm I'm heartbroken when I look at Caiaphas because I think of Caiaphas and I actually think that what if Caiaphas had given his heart to Jesus and what if Caiaphas and the apostle Paul were the ones rolling down the Roman salt roads carrying the gospel of King Jesus and preaching and setting up new churches and installing new elders and deacons and deaconesses and, and launching churches all over the known world. What would have happened if Caiaphas had given his heart to Jesus? And instead, he is full of anger and jealousy and resentment. Now, let me, let me like cut a line here. And I'm, I'm not going to spend too much more time on it lest I fully run out. Um, there is a difference between a um, spirit-led desire and a fleshly want. In other words, I may walk out of here and see a red Ferrari drive by. And I go, I just, you know, I want to be Magnum P.I. and drive a red Ferrari. I think God will just have me repent and get over it. I mean, I really do, okay? I'm not saying that anytime you covet something, it's definitely 100% from God. And I think you have to weigh before God, is this a fleshly want or is this a true spirit-led desire that I don't have yet faith for? And if it's a true spirit-led desire, then you go, Lord Jesus, would you forgive me for coveting my neighbor's house? And would you give me hope that you've called us to a house like that? That's what Abby and I did, and we kept doing it. It's amazing. Now, if you want the red Ferrari, I just say get on your knees and repent and go, Lord, forgive me. Now, even with the red Ferrari, though, here's what I would say. Lord, what is it that I really want? What is my true desire deep within me? What am I longing for that I want people to like look or stop or respect or whatever it is? What am I really longing for? And how do you want to meet that need? Because God always wants to meet our legitimate needs in legitimate ways. Oftentimes, things like the red Ferrari are are trying to meet a legitimate God-given call and need in an illegitimate way. You hear me? If you have a red Ferrari today, be at peace. <laughs> Perhaps God is using it in your life. I am not God. <clears throat> okay, does that make sense? Can't wait to look to the eyes of my Jesus and say, did Caiaphas make it? Like you presented yourself to him You gave it all to him. You shared with him. He knew everything. He knew the entirety of the Old Testament. At the end of the journey, did he turn to you in the last second? I hope so. I hope so. Okay, here we are. 
So the Sadducees, Caiaphas, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles. They put them in the public jail. So we're going to come back to this with the, with the apostles, but you can either respond to Jesus uh, with surrender and celebration. We're going to get, back, get to that later. Or you can respond to Jesus like Caiaphas did with jealousy and hatred. Okay, so they arrest the apostles and they put them in jail. That's a way to fix your enemy, right? Arrest his hide, throw him in jail. All right, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Now, again, this is Dr. Luke, who is a scientific mind. He is given to having exact minutiae details absolutely correct in the book of Luke and in the book of Acts. So when he says an angel of the Lord appeared uh, and opened the doors of the jail and brought them out, and, and I can't even imagine what was that like? They're sitting in jail. They're probably shackled to the wall. It's dank. It is wet. It is nasty. There's probably roaches and rats and who knows what else. And the guards would have been right outside. And all of a sudden, an angel angel of God walks right through the stone walls, probably not unlike these, walks right through and appears to them. And what does he say? Go stand in the temple courts and tell the, all the people, uh, all, or excuse me, tell the people all about this new life. Go create more ruckus. Serious. Did Rome, did Rome want them, did Pontius Pilate and the Roman leaders and rulers want them preaching Jesus? No. Did the Sadducees and Pharisees and even the Zealots and the Essenes want them preaching Jesus? No. They were trying to quiet them. And you would think that surely, oh, we as Christians are never supposed to create a ruckus or a commotion. But the angel goes busting right through into their jail, unlocks or pulls their hands right out of the steel uh, shackles, we don't know, and stands them up and says, get back in the game. Go create more ruckus because the kingdom of God, the new body of Christ, the spirit of Jesus is hovering over his church and the scattering and persecution of the church that is now happening is actually the spontaneous infilling power of God going forth in and through his church. I love that he says, go back into the game. That's counter to much of what we as Christians today think. This is meek and mild Jesus right here. That's it. He's being meek. Get back in the game. At daybreak, verse 21, they entered the temple courts as they had been told, and they began to teach the people. Okay. When the high priest and his associate arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin. Mm, let me pause here before I keep going. Uh, God allows certain chains and certain prisons in your life to further his glory and your good and his purpose in and through your life. Somebody say amen. 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 That's not a fun one to say amen to. I get it. But listen to me. Um, and I would even say consider the Apostle Paul in this moment. The Apostle Paul, and we're going to read about him in the coming weeks and months, but he's one of the most driven humans I have ever seen. Like driven to advance the gospel. Driven, driven, driven. He preaches every chance he gets. He starts new churches. He lays his hands on the sick. He's like going for it all the time. And I am convinced that he would never have stopped his busy schedule to write 66% of the New Testament unless God God sovereignly saw fit to put him in? That was really weak, guys. The answer is prison. All right, let's try that again. I am convinced 
that the Apostle Paul would not have slowed his busy schedule, would not have stopped preaching, would not have stopped doing what he did in terms of advancing the gospel and starting new churches, except that God sovereignly saw fit to park his backside in prison and said to him, write, be still, stop preaching, stop traveling, stop moving around and instead write so that the entire body of Christ that is not yet even born can experience the saving power of God in and through the Bible and new churches not just can be started in your lifetime and your generation, but down through the generations and down through all the countries of the world until King Jesus returns. It's like, what? Now hear, hear me because this is where it gets personal and hard. There are probably things in your life that feel like chains, that feel like limitations, that feel like dark, dank prisons with roaches and, and rats and mice and who knows what else. And it feels like God has left you and abandoned you. And if you will but humble your heart and ask for a kingdom perspective, it might be that he's parked you there not just to work in your life, but to accomplish his purpose through your life. Do you hear me? Is God going to heal everyone and deliver everyone from every difficult thing? No. There are times when he sovereignly orchestrates and allows things to further the kingdom of God in and through your difficulty and suffering. For someone in here, that should be good news. Can that include sickness? Yes. Can that include financial difficulty? Yes. Could that include job loss, marriage loss, a spouse that leaves you, being abused as a child? Like it goes on and on and on. What God can take when humans do or even the enemy does evil things to you or around you, God's arm is not so short that he can't use those things and flip it for your good and his glory. That's the gospel. That's powerful. Some of y'all are sitting somewhere in a prison going, God, deliver me. And God actually wants you to have a flip up moment where your brain goes boing and you go, oh my goodness, you want to use this. And I go, yes, yes. Will he meet you in the pain? Yes, every day. Thank you. Okay. I do think it's interesting, too, because I'm pretty much convinced that the closer you are to Jesus, the more trouble you're going to cause. I'm just saying. So, verse 21, in violation, in, in violation of the direct orders of the Sanhedrin, and in violation of the direct orders of Rome, and in violation of the direct orders of Herod, and in violation of the direct orders of Pontius Pilate, they, they go back in at daybreak, enter into the temple courts as they had been told, and they began to teach the people. If an earthly authority misuses a God-given power, to command what he forbids or to forbid what he commands, then the Christian's duty is to disobey the human authority in order to obey God and then be prepared to suffer whatever consequences you have to for standing with God. Do I need to read that again? If an earthly authority misuses a God-given power to command what he forbids or to forbid what he commands, then it is the Christian's duty to disobey that human authority in order to obey God's authority and then be prepared to suffer whatever consequences come as a result. Every one of the apostles except one was ultimately martyred 
because they took a stand against human authority because the human authority was forbidding what God commanded. That's what's happening right here. All right. When the high priest, I'm in the latter half of verse 21. When the high priest and his associates arrived, where did they arrive? The temple. Okay, what's happening at the temple? Mm. They're preaching. Are the crowds gathering? Probably are sick people coming. Are people probably being healed based on what's been happening? Is there a huge commotion? Does the whole thing feel out of control and disorganized and chaotic? Okay. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin. This is like their, their um, Supreme Court. The full assembly of the elders, probably 71 of them, um, the elders of Israel, and they sent to the jail for the apostles. Now, they don't even know that this big commotion that they see going on in the temple is led by the two guys, that were, or all the apostles that were put in prison. Okay, verse 22. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported. Verse 23. We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. The guards didn't even know. Like, did they fall into a sleep? Like, the angel just walked right through and they walked right out and nobody even knew? And when they opened them, we found no one inside. I, you know, I think that there's moments where God has this beautiful sense of humor. I actually would have loved to have stood here. It's one of the places that, again, that I would love to go back. It's like, Father, what happened here? But I can just imagine the angel walking out with Peter and John and the other apostles and going, hey, let's lock the door back and see what they say. <laughs> it's like, What? Verse 24, on hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came in and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the great Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. Who's the high priest? Caiaphas. Is God still pursuing the heart of Caiaphas here? You better believe it. Verse 28, we gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of the blood of Jesus. Verse 29, Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. Come on. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. Peter is likely signing his death warrant today. Like you got to understand that. The courage of this man to just belt out total truth, like unapologetically. Verse 31, God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and to forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Peter's a changed man. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. Again, I would say because they were offered a seat at the table and they refused. So they want to stop what God is doing. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, here's the third way. So the first way we're going to see that you can respond to Jesus is by... Um, is by surrender and celebration. The second way you can respond to Jesus is like Caiaphas. It is um, hardness of heart. It's jealousy and hatred. The third way is Gamaliel. 
All right, so a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that these men be put outside for a little while. So he goes into like a closed court. Get them out of here. We need to talk without them hearing. Verse 35, then he addresses the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thaddeus appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied around him. He was killed. His followers were dispersed. So did Thaddeus come to anything? No, nothing. And it all came to nothing. Verse 37, after him, Judas, the Galilean, appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed. His followers were scattered. Therefore, in this present case, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it'll fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will find yourself fighting against God. Now, let me say a couple things here. I am convinced that God used Gamaliel's, uh, what I'm going to call lukewarm faith, to protect the apostles from certain death. Okay? He used Gamaliel that day to stop because they would have probably killed the apostles. They're about to kill Stephen in a chapter or two, and they probably would have done the same thing. And God used Gamaliel to stop them. Okay, verse 41. Um, excuse me. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. He's got some wisdom, doesn't he? Okay, and, and that can be you. There's some, there's some wisdom in this. Let's keep going. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in, had them flogged. That's beat with um, leather, uh, a leather whip, usually with nine strands on it, sometimes with bone and glass and shards and even lead. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, and then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and he let them go. Verse 41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing over their bloody backs because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Verse 42, day after day, the temple courts, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Okay, now let's open this up. Gamaliel, I want to cross-reference Revelation 3, verses 14 through 16, and I want you to evaluate Gamaliel through the lens of Revelation 3. If you don't want to flip there, that's fine. You can just listen. Revelation 3, verses 14 through 16. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I, hang with me, everybody. This is powerful. Are you ready? I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Is Gamaliel hot or cold? Fully lukewarm. I would say that the Pharisees are cold and you got Caiaphas who's cold. You got people who want to kill him who are cold. You have hot, that's John and Peter and all the apostles preaching Jesus, unafraid to die. Now, Gamaliel, hot or cold? Now, here's the deal. In Laodicea, and I just want to make one comment or sentence about this. In Laodicea, um, there was a well that, that their well in the city dried up and they had to use a, a Roman aqueduct to pipe water into the city of Laodicea. And so this aqueduct, that's like a Roman half pipe that they run water through. So water was coming out of the ground cold and tasty and wonderful and refreshing, okay? And then it gets piped in this aqueduct. And what happens as it crosses the plain to Laodicea? It becomes lukewarm, okay? So when, when John writes this in the book of Revelation, he is actually writing to like a geographical um, truth that everyone who was from Laodicea would have known. We hated the water in the city because it was 
Lukewarm. And what do you want to do with lukewarm water? Okay, get something here. Is, I mean, in, even in our American viewpoint, Gamaliel seems wise. He seems together. He seems collected. He's like tempered. He's respected by everyone. And yet, if you look at him from the hot, cold, lukewarm position, where is he? And what does God want to do with that? Give me someone hot. Give me someone cold. Don't give me lukewarm. Now, did God use Gamaliel on this particular day to protect the apostles from certain death? Yes. One of the questions I have at the end of the journey is to know, did Gamaliel make it? If you look at the life of Gamaliel, history would say he did not make it into the gates of heaven. He remained lukewarm. Indifferent. Was Jesus preaching through Peter, through John, through the apostles to Gamaliel? You better believe it. All right, verse 40. His speech persuaded them. Who's them? Great Sanhedrin. They called the apostles in and they had them flogged. There's, if all 12 apostles were there, they would have beaten these guys across their backs until there was no skin on their backs. Like none. Okay, this is usually 39 lashes. They are bleeding all the way down to their ankles. As they even walked, their footprints would have been full of blood. And are they, look at this, I mean, get this. The apostles left the Sanhedrin, verse 41, rejoicing because they have been counted worthy of hot, cold. What I'm beginning to propose to you, I think holds even today, is you can respond to King Jesus in one of three ways. Number one, you can surrender your life to him and then rejoice because of whatever suffering and difficulty comes your way because God wants to use it for your good and his glory. Number two, you can be like Caiaphas, refuse the offer of God, reject the offer of God, become jealous and hate-filled because you didn't get what you think you should have gotten. Rejecting God. Or number three, you can be like Gamaliel watching and sitting in a position of lukewarmness. Does that hold today? I want to end with the words of Jesus in Matthew 5. You don't have to turn here. You can make a note if you'd like. But Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12. This is the Sermon on the Mount. This is where the name uh, Saltbox comes from, by the way, from where Jesus preached this. Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12 says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Who's me? Jesus. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for those in the same way they persecuted the prophets. Uh, excuse me. Great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Did the apostles fulfill the words of Jesus? Yes. Listen to me, church. Wherever you sit in this moment, when Jesus walks into the room and reveals himself to you, you can surrender your life to him, rejoice for whatever difficulty comes your way and take up the new call and purpose. You can refuse the person of Jesus, become filled with anger, jealousy, or you can be like Gamaliel. And when Jesus confronts you with the truth of the gospel, you can remain lukewarm and indifferent. Let's pray. Stand with me if you will.
Father, I believe that you are doing something powerful in the Capital C Church in this country and around the world. Father, I believe that we're standing at the greatest precipice of opportunity that we've ever seen in our lives, anybody in the room. Father, I believe that you have called us as a body to be not lukewarm and not cold, but hot, burning, blazing Christians full of the Spirit of Jesus. And Father, I pray as we live in a country that appears like it's more and more ex-Christian or formerly Christian, that we wouldn't wring our hands, that we wouldn't be worried, that we wouldn't speak evil of politics or leaders or presidents or people, but rather we would take up our place as ministers of the gospel of King Jesus to share hope, to share joy, to share peace, to share faith. And Father, I pray that you would use the likes of us, unschooled, ordinary people who surrender their lives before you, that you would use us to accomplish your extraordinary work on the earth. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you can, if you believe with your, excuse me, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, I'm going to read it because I can't remember it. (laughs) Pastor Michael can't remember that verse. I can't. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. and It is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. I don't often do this, but as we close this service, is there anyone here who'd go, I need to give my life to this Jesus. I've never known a God of love. I'm just going to give you a minute. Would you stick up your hand if that's anybody? I realize this is uncomfortable and some eyes are open, some are closed, but is there anybody out there, even anybody online? If you're here and you're not sticking your hand up, I'm going to be up here afterwards. I'd love to pray with you. Prayer team, would you guys come up and make yourself available just across the front? Father, as we go from this place, Lord, would you fill us with your spirit? Father, would you fill us with your strength? And Father, I pray that we would take up our place in the scattering and spontaneous expansion of the gospel of King Jesus. mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast of Saltbox Church. If this content was helpful to you, please like it, rate it, review it, and share it on social media, as that is helpful to us. We believe when a person grows in their own Jesus journey, everyone around them benefits and gets better.